Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Werner Wilson, a first-year Master of Environmental Management candidate at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm here in the studio with my colleague, Kendall Barbary, and with a fellow Alaskan, Dr. Gunnar Knapp. Yale College Class of 75, Magna Cum Laude in Economics, and PhD in Economics 81 for the second part of the two-part series on Alaska resource and policy issues. Dr. Knapp is an internationally recognized scholar for his work on fisheries markets and management of fisheries resources in Alaska and worldwide. He's currently working on a book called The Economics of Fish. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Knapp. It's a real pleasure. Now, reading your curriculum vitae, which is 25 impressive pages, I might add, you have done so much work on analyzing seafood economics in Alaska for decades. What's the significance of Alaska seafood on U.S. and international markets? Uh, Alaska is a really big deal in the seafood world. Uh, Alaska produces more than half of the uh, wild fish harvest of the United States. Um, If Alaska were an independent country, which (laughs) some Alaskans uh, sort of like to imagine that it is, uh, it would be, uh, depending upon the year, uh, 10th or 11th or 9th uh, in the world in uh, the uh, amount of fish that it produces. So Alaska is even more significant uh, with re- with regard to certain um, major fish species. So it, it produces about 40% of the world's wild salmon, uh, uh, close to half of the uh, world's uh, Alaska pollock, king crab, halibut. Uh, it is the place uh, to, uh, you know, that these uh, species are caught. Uh, it's uh, an industry that employs tens of thousands of people. Uh, and Uh, I think Alaska has significance in one other important respect. Alaska is looked to as a place where, in contrast to much of the world, uh, the wild fishery resources are uh, generally healthy, uh, considered to be well-managed, considered to be sustainably managed, uh, and uh, a place where, at at least from a biological point of view, uh, uh, fisheries are working well. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I'm a salmon fisherman from Bristol Bay in Alaska. In this region where I grew up, there's a proposed golden copper mine that can be one of the world's largest, worth upwards of about $300 billion, and produce, it, it would produce jobs. Yet this mine is probably the most contentious environmental issue in Alaska. The Washington Post wrote that, besides the Keystone Pipeline, the proposed pebble mine may be, quote, one of the most important environmental decisions of President Obama's second term. Can you explain to us why the proposed pebble mine is such a controversial issue? The uh, pebble mine is uh, represents a, a clash of uh, two extremely large and valuable kinds of resources uh, where uh, at least there's a perception uh, in many people's minds that, uh, that we're facing a choice between one or the other. Whether that's actually true is uh, a more subtle issue, which we can come back to. But um, certainly on, on the fishing side, a lot of people uh, feel that way. 
what you have is Bristol Bay, uh, which is home, which is really the world's largest and most valuable salmon fishery. And you're part of it, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's um, Bristol Bay is a beautiful, uh, wild, wild area of southeast Alaska um, that is perfect habitat for uh, sockeye salmon uh, because of its uh, uh, extensive river and lake system. And uh, what you have is every year tens of millions of sockeye salmon return from the ocean to uh, spawn in the in these streams in Bristol Bay. And um, tens of millions, that's that's a hard number for people to fathom how many salmon that actually is. It's it's an unbelievable number and it's a it's a it's an astonishing sight to see the salmon uh, swarming into the into the streams in Bristol Bay or the or the volume of fish that are that are caught there by the fishermen. Um, and and dependent on these salmon are uh, thousands and thousands of uh, people who uh, fish there in the commercial fishery, which has existed for some uh, more than 125 years, uh, well over a century of uh, of extremely valuable fish production. Uh, it is considered one of the world's great sport fishing areas. And then the native uh, residents, really all residents of the region, uh, rely very heavily uh, on the local salmon resources for uh, subsistence uh, fishing to, you know, to, uh, to feed themselves and, and culturally very important. And uh, so all these people who value these salmon, and by the way, it's not just the salmon, there's a whole ecosystem of incredible bears and eagles and all the rest that, that comes with wild Alaska that is, depends on these salmon. They feel that a, a large mine uh, in this region uh, could irreparably alter the region um, uh, that, that a, um, it could potentially lead to catastrophic uh, damage such as from say if a if a uh, the dam that sort of holding back the tailings or so on were to were to rupture or something of the sort you could um, you could uh, pollute the headwaters in the major in several major river streams and and drastically uh, harm these salmon. I think underlying this talked about less, but underlying the concern also is that with a mine would come roads increased access, more settlement, more roads, more tourists, and the region would inevitably change uh, for the worse from the perceptions of people who like Bristol Bay, uh, such as, as it is. So a lot of people that are uh, economically and culturally and personally uh, involved with this resource feel that the Pebble Mine would be just an uh, unmitigated disaster. At the same time, this resource deposit is an enormously valuable uh, copper and gold deposit. Uh, I believe it would be uh, the largest copper deposit in the world or on that scale. Uh, we're talking um, tens of billions of dollars worth of um, uh, mineral value that, that could be extracted, uh, an extremely large-scale economic activity that could create a tremendous amount of income, jobs, and the like. Uh, and uh, in, uh, in Alaska, which is in a place that's increasingly concerned about its overwhelming dependence on the oil industry, and also in a part of Alaska that has a lot of really deep poverty and unemployment in, in the villages closest to this region, 
a lot of people are looking to this mine as a sort of potential major new economic activity. And, uh, and that would extend, say, to my community of Anchorage, where uh, a lot of people don't fish in Bristol Bay, but would sure like a job that, you know, in the city that Pebble Mine might contribute to. So there is the seeds for a big conflict. And what it, what's happened is this is elevated to a national political issue where both sides both the, the fishing industry and many allies and the mining industry and many allies are lobbying Congress and the White House uh, to either uh, block this uh, mine before it, before it gets started, before it can even apply for a permit on the, on the side of the environmentalists and the fishermen, or to not block it and allow the normal process of application for a permit to go, to go forward. In Alaska, uh, we've seen something unprecedented in my 32 years there of uh, this isn't even uh, formally a proposed mine yet, and yet we had uh, uh, television ads for both sides sort of running constantly, uh, arguing over why this is a terrible thing or, or, or a great thing, uh, and full-blown newspaper ads and an increasingly nasty political argument. So is it a big deal? It sure is in Alaska, and it is one becoming nationally also. Now on a related issue, in the 1990s, the price for wild sockeye salmon collapsed. It was down to about 40 cents a pound due to the introduction of farm salmon that you spoke about earlier onto the world market. Now the market of wild salmon has improved, and this past year, us fishermen, we've received about $1.50 a pound for a catch for our wild sockeye. Can you talk about this trend and why we've seen these changes? This has been one of the most interesting things I've observed uh, over my entire career and uh, the subject of much of my sort of academic research. What we observed was a drastic crash in the price of um, not just Bristol Bay salmon, as you spoke of, uh, but uh, all across uh, Alaska, all the wild salmon fisheries. Uh, crash in price from 1988 down to 2002, and then a dramatic recovery since then. Uh, To simplify this very complicated issue, uh, you can put it sort of in terms of uh, supply and demand. And the first effect, the crash, was due to farm salmon coming on the world market uh, and increasing the supply. In effect, flooding a, a relatively thin world salmon market with more and more supply. So salmon was a high-priced uh, com- commodity and high-priced fish because there wasn't very much of it, uh, and as a great fish to eat. And if when the salmon farmers produced it, they overproduced for the amount of demand that was out there, and the price fell drastically, particularly, uh, say, in um, Japan, where Chilean salmon farmers produced a sort of replaced Alaska salmon uh, in the market. So the price crashed, and it, and it caused a lot of economic turmoil in the Alaska salmon industry. Uh, but the second part of the story since 2002 is largely the demand side. And what, what happened was the world started eating more salmon. In effect, the cheap availability of salmon got more people to eat it. As more people ate it and as more stores stocked it, we went into an era where salmon is available in every grocery store in America and Europe and, uh, and beyond. And, uh, and the, there are 
far more salmon eaters than there were three decades ago when all this started. And now we've come to a situation where all the world's wild salmon and all the world's farm salmon isn't really enough to satisfy all this demand. And so what you've got is uh, uh, you know, a seller's market and the price has been rising. And that's what's driven this uh, uh, amazing increase, particularly the bump in price from a dollar a pound last year to a dollar fifty a pound for Bristol Bay salmon fishermen. Just think of that. Uh, you fish, you work exactly as hard to catch a fish, and you get fifty, you get fifty percent more. So that's the world of the fishermen, and that's also the world of a global market uh, that is uh, is encountering very strong demand. Interesting. Well, worldwide, many fisheries have collapsed or are facing collapse due to factors such as overfishing and habitat degradation. In the U.S., we've tried to tackle overfishing through the Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Conservation and Management Act, which aims to make America's fish stock sustainable in the long run. Now the act is up for reauthorization. Just a few days ago, Senator Mark Begich of Alaska joined Massachusetts senators to talk with area fishermen about improving the act. What are your thoughts on this? This uh, reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act is, uh, is a, a very important stage in the continuing evolution of U.S. fisheries management policy. Uh, it raises issues that are, are very important to uh, fishermen in, in some of our U.S. fisheries, particularly, particularly I'd say, New England, uh, and, and that are perhaps less important in, in other areas. Um, a lot of the subjects are fairly arcane in the sense that they're hard to understand if you're not, you're not involved uh, in these fisheries. Um, one, I think that, first of all, the most important thing to understand is, in general, this Magnuson-Stevens Act has, has worked well in the sense of uh, U.S. fisheries have been, the condition of them, both economically and biologically, has been improving uh, for several decades. And, uh, but on the other hand, there are parts of the act as presently structured that are, are not working so well. And one of them is uh, that's causing a lot of controversy in New England relates to the requirements for uh, what you need to do if a, if a fishery has, is depressed and um, how quickly, how much, how, how do you make the trade-off between uh, uh, reducing or stopping fishing so that the fish recover versus doing that less so that fishermen can keep fishing. You know, if, if the only thing that mattered were having the ocean full of fish, well, that you could do that very quickly by just sort of stopping fishing until it's all full of fish and then tell the fishermen uh, you can go fishing again. However, fishermen can't, you know, take 10 years off uh, and, and wait for that to happen or they, they go out of business. They can't even, in a lot of their cases, take one year off. And so it's easy to say fishermen should fish less, uh, but uh, from the perspective of a fisherman, that can impose some real economic hardships. So the question, uh, a lot of the questions relate to how, how, what do you mandate uh, in regard to uh, how to address a situation where there's overfishing? And uh, what kind of flexibility do you allow to the local managers? And another question is, is sort of how much deference do you give to scientists as opposed to local officials to say what level of fishing should you allow? This is one of a number of complex issues, many of which are, are local to particular parts of the country.
Now, there have been predictions on how climate change will impact fisheries. What do you think are the implications of climate change on the U.S. seafood industry in the future? I think that they are uncertain, but potentially very large. <laughs> they are aggravatingly uncertain. You know, I, I am an economist, so I can't tell you, I, there's, I have no expertise to tell you what they are. I deal with people in the industry, and people in the industry have, they can't tell you what they are. But if you talk to the climate scientists, and we, the economists and the industry people, go and say, what will happen? And they say, well, actually, we don't know. Because uh, just like if you talk to the people who sort of are, are trying to predict even just what's, you know, the, the temperature of the world going to be, they can't tell you for sure. They can talk about certain scenarios. How, what is the feedback between that uh, global warming and, and fisheries? It is, it is a couple of orders of magnitude more complex uh, because it's partly driven by, um, we, don't know, we don't understand how, remember, fish don't, Sort of salmon don't just sort of swim in the ocean by themselves. Salmon are dependent on a whole food chain that comes before them and, and also predators that come after them. And if climate change affects any of those species in that whole food chain, it can change the whole dynamics of uh, how many salmon there are. Uh, so what, the, what it ends up being is that the scientists say, we can't tell you how the fisheries are going to change, but there's a high potential that there could be very significant changes. Well, that's pretty hard to plan on. And then what they, they say is, oh, and by the way, ocean acidification could bring some really, really important changes. And there we're actually seeing this uh, not so much in the wild industries but in aquaculture where uh, the level of acidification is, is such that they can't get you know, um, uh, oyster seed to grow on the U.S. West Coast, an area where, you know, sort of long-time oyster farming and uh, threatening that industry and causing hatcheries to have, you know, be uh, developed in other places. So this is quite alarming, but it's very uncertain. Recently, there is a huge controversy in Alaska about the Marine Stewardship Council, or MSC. MSC is an international organization that only certifies seafood as sustainable if fishery stocks are not being overexploited, and if fleets are using best available practices to ensure the health of fish stocks. Alaska salmon fisheries, despite their continued sustainable practices, decided to pull out of the MSC certification process. What are the implications of certification, and what do you think this will mean for fishery certification regimes in the future? In a variety of industries, uh, uh, around the world, we're, we're seeing a push towards what we might call independent private certification. And this is basically, so I'm a consumer, and I go to the store, and I, I want to be responsible, or, or maybe a lot of people do. And so we're concerned. If, if we buy this clothing, was, it, was this clothing made by slave labor, or was this clothing made by people in unsafe factories that might burn down? Or was this furniture that I'm buying you know, uh, uh, is it from an unsustainably harvested uh, rainforest somewhere? Or is this fish that I'm buying, is, am I sort of eating the last, uh, you know, <laughs> the last of this species in some over-harvested over harvested fishery? And so 
one of the responses to this kind of issue is certifying organizations have uh, arisen. And these organizations basically sort of give an independent third-party seal, and they say, well, we've We've inspected these factories uh, that make clothing, and we can say that the, you know, that the clothing is sort of socially responsible. Or we've in, we uh, have inspected where this company buys its coffee, and this is fair trade coffee, and the producers are paid a fair amount. Or we, or um, you know, we've inspected the, you know, this wood is sustainably grown. So MSC, the Marine Stewardship Council, was set up with that same philosophy in mind, and so it would provide consumers and also businesses that bought fish a way of knowing that uh, uh, that this was a responsibly sourced product. So this makes a lot of sense, you, you might think, uh, and a, a lot of people liked this idea, and uh, Alaskans initially liked this idea also when the Marine Stewardship Council started uh, because Alaskans' salmon fishery is... Um, definitely sustainably managed. Sustainability is written right into the Alaska Constitution, and Alaskans have a very strong conservation ethic for wild salmon. So Marine Stewardship Council actually came to Alaska, the Alaska salmon industry as the first large fishery that they ever certified and said, boy, you guys are, your management's great. Can we certify you? And we said, sure. And so we were the first fishery to have, first big fishery to have this MSC label. And then we paraded this, you know, and said, MSC certified, and it was a good marketing angle. But over time, this relationship soured, and increasingly Alaskans became concerned about MSC uh, because of the phenomenon that we were now, because you don't just get certified permanently, you you, you have to get recertified. And then they can change the rules and say, oh, by the way, now we're requiring this and this other thing that we didn't require at first to get certified. And uh, so there's become some infringement on your sovereignty. They, they may come and say, we're not going to recertify you unless you do this, this kind of thing. And, they, and so the, in the recertification process, uh, there be, people began to raise issues with some of the practices that uh, Alaskans feel and our fishery managers feel are are completely fine, but we're being disputed by the certifying group. So who has the expertise uh, about how to manage salmon? You know, Alaska with its 50, 50 plus year of managing fisheries sustainably or a private organization in London um, respond, responding to sort of NGOs that argue they don't like something. The second uh, issue relates to the cost. Uh, this is uh, expensive to do this certification process, and, um, and uh, in addition, uh, MSC charges a cost to anybody who uses this label, so it's an expensive label. Uh, and so these two issues began to simmer and eventually uh, grew to a boil, and uh, about a year ago, the uh, most Alaska salmon processors uh, sort of voted to tell the MSC we're no we're not going to seek recertification, and we will reassure consumers and buyers that stores that we don't need MSC to tell us that we can tell them that ourselves, and we can show them that we adhere to the FAO uh, code of conduct for sustainable fisheries management, and uh, and so they withdrew from the MSC, and this led to a a major. Shakeup in the in this uh, certification world b- 
between those who felt that Alaska was greatly weakening an organization which is important and valuable for furthering sustainable fisheries management around the world versus those who thought that Alaska was breaking up a dangerous uh, precedent of a, a, a private NGO answerable to no one uh, and, uh, and asserting the, the, you know, that, the, uh, that we, we could tell our sustainability story in a different way. Now, this summer, this came to a head uh, with several highly publicized um, uh, situations, the most important of which, I think, was that the U.S. Park Service uh, in, in connection with some reforms in um, catering within the park. You know, they didn't want people, you know, the caterers to be serving junk food in the park. They said, you know, you, you can't serve junk food. you got to serve decent food. And somewhere in there, they ad- added a regulation that all fish had to be MSC certified. And suddenly we had the U.S. Park Service saying that Alaska salmon couldn't be served in national parks. And that led to Alaska senators hauling the head of the Park Service before a congressional committee and saying, are you telling Americans to um, not eat Alaska salmon? Uh, and, uh, and, and you can imagine how the politics of that played out. And uh, so this is not a settled issue. This is a highly contentious, real-time issue in the seafood world right at the moment. Now, do you think that that could have implications on the price of salmon in the future for fishermen? Well, that's a question I, I get asked because it was sort of considered a high-risk strategy. What if Alaska, uh, you know, leaves the Marine Stewardship Council, um, and uh, you know, uh, is that going to impact our ability to sell salmon in European markets, say in Germany and and England, where people really care about this? The Alaska salmon industry gambled, no, it won't, and they probably gambled correctly because we have 40% of the world's salmon supply, and who has most of the rest? Russia. And is Russia more sustainable than Alaska? I don't think so. And uh, we uh, gambled, and I think it will prove true that European buyers would recognize that uh, nothing changed, nothing at all changed in the management of Alaska salmon, we simply no longer have that label on it. Now, do they think that that makes the salmon they'd been selling unworthy to be sold in European markets? However, this issue extends to Alaska's other fisheries, such as the pollock fishery, the halibut fishery, and so on, where uh, we don't have maybe such a commanding share of the world market and where it could have different different market implications. So uh, across the different fisheries, there's some disagreement about uh, the importance of retaining MSC certification. Currently, the Food and Drug Drug Administration is considering the approval of the first ever genetically modified animal in history to be sold on the market. Genetically modified salmon. What are your thoughts of GMO salmon and how it could impact wild salmon stocks both ecologically and economically? Well, the first thing I'd I'd say is that... uh, one, I'm not an expert on genetically modified organisms, uh, and uh, you know, and and secondly, this is a a political issue that ultimately comes down to value judgments about risk, uh, and the arguments of those who are sort of 
the, the issue, what's the issue here? There's a concern uh, among some people that uh, GMO salmon um, could pose a risk somehow to the environment or to the people who eat it or so on. Uh, and uh, why? Because it's something new, and we just don't know what the effects are. And what if this thing were to escape, this fast-growing salmon, would it sort of destroy fish in the ecosystem? Um, there's a lot of people uh, and a lot of science that I've seen that says these risks are actually minimal. Uh, uh, and then there, are, on the other hand, there are people that uh, uh, don't see them as minimal but see them as very real. Uh, it seems to me there's a lot of emotion uh, and sort of as opposed to raw science built into the GMO foods debate. Um, and I'm not, I'm not qualified myself to weigh in on how, you know, sort of how significant the risks are, but everything that I have read indicated to me that it's actually not that, not that risky. But I would never go and say, you know, it's my scientific opinion that, that this is okay, because this is not an issue I'm qualified to um, uh, offer an opinion on. There's another side to this, which is the economic side. I think that a lot of people are uh, in certain parts of the salmon industry are concerned. Well, what if you get a, a salmon that grows faster, a farm salmon that grows faster, cheaper to produce? Is this going to uh, sort of be 1991 and all over again? You're going to flood the market with cheaper salmon and, and, and hurt markets for wild salmon. Um, again, that's that's a real a real issue. Another issue is will you will you sort of cause salmon consumers in general to be scared of salmon because you don't know if it's GMO or not. And then, what, you know, well, people say, I'm not going to touch salmon. It might be GMO. So they're worried sort of about tarnishing the whole salmon brand if some of it's GMO. Um, I would simply say on the market competition side, again, there's two sides to that issue. And, uh, you know, uh, from a point of view of a wild salmon fisherman, such as yourself, a Bristol Bay fisherman, it's a it's a it's a lose lose situation. There's no way you know. At best, it won't harm your market. At worst, it might harm your market. So why why what incentive do you have to uh, you know? There, there's no win. But from the point of view of a consumer, would it be such a horrible thing if salmon cost half as much? Or from from a public health point of view? Suppose, suppose you could get salmon for half the price because they invented some sort of cheap-to-raise GMO salmon. Well, uh, again, I'm not commenting on the sort of genetically modified stuff. Suppose that allowed people to eat a lot more fish. That would be good in general for our health. So it's a complex issue. Ultimately, it's a political issue where where uh, we need science to inform us, but that we need I think we need objective science about what actually are the risks, but then it's a political call how to how to take the risks. Another thing that's important is, in my mind, questions like this, behind them lie a bigger question, which is an institutional question. And the real question is not so much what's the right decision here, it's what's the right way to make a decision. And I think that we don't have in place a, a process in the United States for making this. This is certainly an important decision, okay? And, and, I, and I think opponents of the GMO salmon have argued, I think fairly convincingly, that the process we have uh, for making this decision is not adequately considering all the dimensions 
um, that ought to be considered. I mean, I think they, they think about it in a, I, if I understand it, it's, it's an FDA decision. Um, and so the, the, this agency looks at it from a narrow point of view as, uh, are these fish safe to eat? And people would say, well, there's an environmental issue associated with it. And, uh, and, uh, but this FDA is not set up, not capable of evaluating that issue well. And so people say it's not, it, you know, I think maybe the bigger problem here is as we go into the potential sort of GMO animals issue, we don't in this country have adequate institutions to uh, sort of make good decisions about that yet. Um, and, and, and that's not actually not surprising because it's a new technology. But I think that that's really, in my mind, the bigger issue not is GMO salmon okay, but do we have uh, a good way of bringing together the information and having the discussion we need to get to a good decision? Tell us about your upcoming book. My book <laughs> is, uh, is called The Economics of Fish. And uh, I am trying, my goal in this book is to describe the many and fascinating issues that um, where economics applies to issues related to fish. And this goes all the way uh, from issues such as uh, what drives the price of fish uh, to what are, uh, what are the economic implications of different ways of managing fisheries to what, uh, what are the economic factors that are driving the growth of fish farming around the world to what is the role of fisheries in the in an economy um, and uh, so it's it's a very wide range of issues and uh, I have interacted over much of my career with people who are passionately concerned with these kinds of issues but don't sort of have a good handle on uh, how you how, how you understand and analyze the economics of them. So uh, I've spent a number of decades sort of trying to explain what is actually fairly complicated economics to people that are, are living and breathing these issues. You know, why, why did the price of fish fall? Why did it rise? You know, uh, it, uh, is uh, an issue I was uh, heavily involved in was a highly controversial issue of whether um, price fixing had occurred in the Bristol Bay salmon fishery. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to explain those issues to people, and I thought, I'm going to try to write a book where I sort of put in this book uh, the kinds of things that I've spent my career trying to explain in a way that is under, understandable. So I'm trying to write a book that makes economics comprehensible to a group of people that care intensely about uh, a lot of economic issues that relate to fish, which is basically, uh, you know, as I said earlier in the first half of this interview, about 95% of Alaskans. <laughs> in conclusion, we're a long ways away from Alaska. Is there anything else you want the Yale community to understand? Well, uh, first, I would encourage uh, anybody at Yale or anywhere to, uh, on the list of things you should do sometime in your life, try to get to Alaska. It's, it's a stunningly, uh, magically beautiful place. 
and uh, you know I, I'd say the same thing about the Grand Canyon or or, or other special places, uh, and so Alaska is right up there. Secondly, I'd say to a certain kind of person, um, uh, I, I hope that I can recruit a few people to follow the kind of path that I did to uh, go off to a very different kind of place and, uh, um, and realize you can have a tremendously rewarding academic career in, in a place like Alaska. Uh, the issues uh, are very real, and in some sense, you, you're better poised to understand them, even in some ways, even than that are great at a great institution of learning like Yale. And, and uh, so I, I hope some people will, will consider that option. And then a third thing I'd say is when you hear from a great distance about issues in Alaska, like um, the pebble mine or Arctic oil drilling or... Um, uh, you know, wild salmon, farm salmon, things like that, uh, recognize that the issues are undoubtedly more complex, more subtle, more nuanced than uh, what you're going to, what is going to be conveyed in the New York Times article that you're reading or the academic journal article that you're reading or no matter how reliable you think your source is, um, in particular, if it's not by somebody who's from the place, the chances are there's more more to it. Maybe anybody over time sort of goes through life and eventually goes around to reading a newspaper story or an article about something they're personally involved in. You know, sort of they, they you yourself witnessed the bank robbery and now you read the article the next morning in the paper and you always discover, or I always discover, yeah, that's the general idea, but actually it missed something. It wasn't quite like that. It was a little bit more complex. Or, hey, they got that wrong. You know, it, that just isn't true. And uh, that's my sense about whenever I read about what somebody writes about Alaska from a distance or says, unless they're people that are, you know, are, are from there and are really immersed in it, it always tends to be a, a little oversimplified. So I'd, I'd say... Consider that when you hear about places like Alaska or, 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 or any place, any place in the world that you're not from, and uh, expect that the truth is actually more subtle and, and more interesting. Dr. Knapp, thank you so much for joining us. You're very, very welcome. <laughs>